Hey everybody, welcome to another Ithaca Bound podcast episode. I'm your host, Andrew Schiestel, and this is the podcast where we explore history and mythology in the Mediterranean basin. I'm joined today with Dr. Salima Ikram for a conversation about the relationship that ancient Egyptians had with animals. Dr. Ikram is a distinguished university professor at the American University in Cairo. She's the author of numerous publications over her career, including editing the book, Divine Creatures, Animal Mummies in Ancient Egypt, which was published by the American University in Cairo Press. And she's co-editor of the book, A History of World Egyptology, which uh, was published by Cambridge University Press. Welcome to the call, Salima. Thank you so much. Okay, so well, I'll, I'll get at it right away with a broad overview uh, question, but we'll get to the... Um, the, the the heart of the the topic uh, today. Um, can you uh, summarize what the relationship was that um, people in ancient Egypt had with animals? Um, the ancient Egyptians had a very complicated relationship with animals, um, but also one that was very intimate. Um, animals influenced the Egyptians uh, on many levels from the start of their history to about five thousand BC. Um, to be very rough about it, um, all throughout their existence. And of course, you know, animals are food. Animals were, for the Egyptians also provided them with uh, raw materials for furniture, for clothing, for shelter. Um, but also, more importantly for the Egyptians, animals were really the, uh, their inspiration for their gods, their language, and a lot of their art. So um, they relied on animals on many different levels for their existence and, of course, for their culture and religion. What, um, and there's probably endless uh, numbers of different animals that can be uh, cited, but what what are some of the more popular um, animals that, uh, researchers, when they're looking at this topic, um, uh, explore? What are the more popular animals uh, in, in Egypt in this period of time? Well, I mean, I think it depends a lot on the researcher because everyone's got their favorite creature. Um, so you will will see that, certainly. Mm-hmm, um, mm-hmm. Uh, of course, a lot of people talk about cats because cats are general favorites. And um, then you have the dog camp. Um, so we get a lot of people who are asking about dogs, and then they're the ones who are interested in exotic animals, like baboons or lions or leopards, cheetahs, um, and also sort of foxes and things like that. But I think those are the general ones that people ask about. Though there are so many other animals that the Egyptians interacted with. Though um, it is worth noting that in their history, uh, things changed a lot over time and that uh, as the climate changed due to global changes in climate, as well as more localized changes due to an increase in population between 3000 uh, BC and 200 AD, um, the kind of animals that existed in Egypt changed as well. Hmm. Uh, And you have fewer things, you know, wild lions, but then you start importing things. So some of the earliest exotic pet trade occurred in ancient Egypt. Okay. And um, actually, coincidentally, I had a very nice conversation with um, uh, Dr. Caroline 
uh, Goodson from the University of Cambridge actually about an hour ago. So this is very uh, uh, timely. We were chatting about um, basically food food in, in, in Rome in the Middle Ages. Um, oh, yeah. Yeah, yeah. So and now we're talking about and northern northern Africa was a, a big uh, e um, exporter of uh, food like grains to, to, to Rome um, uh, at, at, at some point. Um, so uh, so food was the topic. So when it comes to food in ancient Egypt, you mentioned that uh, animals obviously were used as as food. What were the common foods that ancient uh, e Egyptians ate in terms of uh, animal meat? Well, um, if you were wealthy, the highest level of food would have been um, cattle. So beef would have been the best thing you could have. But this is something that generally the king or the priests and the high elite would eat commonly and people less frequently to, as, as you go down the social scale. This was followed by sheep and goat, mm -hmm. then pigs, and then all kinds of poultry, but mainly water birds, because these would be nilotic, and fish. And what's quite cool, though, is that uh, in twice a year, sort of April, March, April, early May, and then November, October, November, you also get more avifauna, more birds coming through Egypt because they are migrating. And then the kind of birds that you could catch and eat right then or maybe even try and tame or breed increased tremendously because you had hundreds of different species coming through here and then of course you know in addition to these what we would consider more normal kind of foods um, we also sometimes had exotic food so wild game hartebeest oryx different kinds of antelopes and even sometimes hyenas were consumed so you can see that the Egyptians really made use of whatever was around. Um, and people always talk about things like chickens, but chickens didn't come to Egypt and be bred here really until the fourth century BC or maybe even a bit later. So the, the sort of the food that we see all the time nowadays is something that was really unknown to the pharaohs. Okay. And you mentioned there was a change in the... Uh, livestock, if I can use that term at some point in Egypt, that's very um, pronounced in this period of time. Can you uh, expand on that? What was the major uh, change from a geopolitical level, if it was a geopolitical change? And uh, how did that impact the, the types of um, uh, animals that were uh, brought in uh, or, or found their way into Egypt? Well, I mean, before the Sahara was formed, we're going back a very long time. Mm -hmm. um, of course, we would have had things like elephants and lots of lions, uh, giraffes, many kind of, uh, you know, rhinos and huge number of antelopes. And then as the desiccation took hold, these animals gradually moved south. And in Egypt, by about 3000 BC, for example, it is unlikely that most of Egypt would have had much in the way of giraffes or indeed elephants, though they were known um, from slightly earlier on to the Egyptians. Um, and then, of course, the types of antelopes also decreased over time, in fact, in terms of the variety um, going ever southward. And of course, many of them being hunted um, to close to extinction. And then later on, of course, they started to bring these animals in by trading them 
with sub-Saharan Africa. And in fact, they had set up zoos as well as game parks where they would go hunting. Um, so you would have a reintroduction of species that had been known before. Okay. And um, so can you explain what, what the major change was with the Sahara in Egypt in this period of time? I, I think that would be getting a bit too complicated for me and the, um, but I mean, there was, a, there were all many global changes in climate. Um, okay. um, and that was when the Sahara started to become the Sahara. So you would have all of these places that were green and verdant, drying up, um, rains not coming. Uh, and uh, also, I think volcanic activity in various other parts of the world, influencing the climate um, all over. Um, which is why we wind up with having this desiccation. So instead of having pe the animals and indeed humans mm -hmm. inhabiting a large part of Egypt, you start getting them concentrated in some cases around uh, lakes that persisted and then those two would dried up in what is now the Sahara, um, but also more and more people and animals mm. drawing into the Nile Valley. And of course, mm. then when the animals and the people are competing, for um, food and water and so forth, and then people are having more domesticated livestock, this takes away the um, environment and ecology for the wild animals. And so they get pushed downwards and away or exist in pockets where there would um, not be so many people and so many mm. domestic animals. So even until relatively recently in the southeast corner of Egypt, there's a place called the Wadi Ala'i um, and Jebel Elba, and this is a protected park. And in the protectorate, um, until relatively recently, you would have uh, many more wild animals existing because the ecosystem was fine and they didn't have to compete with domestic animals. Okay. Yeah, that was a perfectly... Uh suitable answer, Salim. I was asking more for my background knowledge as, as well. So thank you for um, explaining that a bit around the Sahara. Um, did uh, people in ancient Egypt, did, did they have pets? And what were the common pets? The Egyptians did have pets. I think probably the first animal that they had as a domesticated animal was a dog. And that's both useful as well as companionship. Um, and we have images of hunting dogs very early on um, in Egyptian art. But even before that time, you have all kinds of animal imagery mm. um, in the artistic record, whether it is rock art in both the eastern and western, what are now the eastern and western desert, where you would see things like elephants, hippos, there is the odd rhino, hmm. giraffes, oryx, ibex, gazelles, other antelope. They get a bit complicated. Um, foxes, um, dogs, ostrich, uh, lots of different kinds of birds that are hard to identify. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And um, so you get all of that kind of stuff in the rock art. And then, of course, in the more formalized art, this continues. And then periodically, when the Egyptians were having contact with the Near East, you start seeing more mythological animals, you get griffins hmm. um, and serpopods, which are leopards with uh, snake-like necks and heads. Um, so you get these combinations, which might have been brought in from um, the Near East, or they could even, some of them have been ideas that the Egyptians 
got by finding happening upon fossils in the desert here and um, making up creatures based on that. Um, so you see the all of these animals. And then in the fourth millennium, of course, you start getting any more domesticates. Um, and the question often has been raised is, after that, as time goes by, you see all of these animals, wild animals and hunting scenes. Now, were they really there? Were people still hunting them? Or in fact, were the artists going back and just copying from earlier imagery? So this is also a bit of a question because we don't always find um, enough evidence in the zooarchaeological record. So we don't know sometimes if an image is just an image as a repeat or whether the actually the animals existed. And so that depends, of course, on um, accidents of archaeology, because sometimes you might just dig three meters away and miss a huge mm. cache of interesting bones. So hmm. um, the artwork that uh, has various uh, illustrations of animals um, were these in, were these inscriptions on a on a, a certain type of uh, stone? Um, has has earthen earthenware showing up with um, these these illustrations? Can you explain more the type of uh, surfaces that uh, the types of objects and, and surfaces that these um, uh, illustrations have uh, gotten to us? As, you know, in contemporary times, and what do you think the um, the artists were trying to get at uh, in uh, illustrating various animals in artwork. The Egyptians did love to decorate surfaces. And we have um, pottery vessels that are decorated. We have both pottery and stone vessels that are in fact made in the shape of different animals. Hmm. And of course, the tomb and temple walls often uh, have these animals painted on them and different scenes showing them. So as the tombs are fabulous mm. um, because you can show, they show you know the wilderness or they show hunting and that's where you get all your wild animals. You get places where they're force feeding birds so that they can get fat and probably that's where the foie gras was invented. Um, you have, um, you know, you show scenes of them fishing and fowling and doing all kinds of things. So you have a real sense of what the environment was like and how the Egyptians were interacting with it, whether they were trying to control it, whether they were looking at it as an aesthetic um, event or something that was more pragmatic. Okay. Um, you mentioned dogs was adopted pretty early on as a, as a common pet in, uh, in Egypt. Uh, were cats common? Cats probably were domesticated in, in later in Egypt than um, dogs were. And in fact, they might have come here as domesticates, perhaps from some other place. But someone has done some really interesting DNA work. Um, and they found that most of the cats all over the world seem to have had some of Egyptian cat DNA. And they think that that might be because um, there were so many cats in Egypt, they were always highly regarded um both aesthetically and also i think as good mousers and so because people you know alexandria and all of these other ports damietta rosetta were major ports that these cats got exported all over the world and that's why so many cats internationally have um egyptian cat dna 
So even if we didn't uh, domesticate them in the first instance, we certainly helped spread our cat types all over the world. Hmm. So how does, um, in this period of time, how does uh, animals show up in Egyptian uh, ancient religions and traditions? Um, for the Egyptians, I mean, animals appeared in lots of different guises. So let's deal with the most pragmatic. Um, in religion, of course, animals were given as offerings for food offerings to the gods. So you would have a huge number of animals that were bred particularly so that they could be offered to the god in a general way or whether they would be given on a festival. So that was the pragmatic animal in religion. But the ancient Egyptian gods were very closely associated with animals. And the Egyptians, as far as we can make out, believed that, you know, when the world was created, the animals were the gods' special creations. And these animals could converse with the gods, and they were so close that many of them were echoing the images of the gods themselves. And that each god or goddess has a totemic animal. And um, so these animals have a closer relationship to the deities. And that's why many of the gods of Egypt have animal attributes. And so you see them sometimes with the head of a particular animal, or sometimes, in fact, they become a super animal. So what, what for example, the god Horus, who is uh, a solar god, is shown as a raptor. And people have been trying to figure out what kind of, you know, hawk, falcon, what is it? Mm. And finally, it was realized that based on the markings, Horus is an amalgam of some of the most um, noticeable markings of a wide variety of raptors so that he becomes a super raptor, the same way that Anubis, who's a canine deity, is not a dog, not a jackal, but a combination of dog, jackal, wolf, and, and also fox, so, Though, you know, foxes are technically not um, king. Um, the same thing, but they look dog-like. Um, and so the Egyptians' deities often had these attributes, and so um, animals were very closely aligned with them. And you also used mm. animals that birds would be set off um, as part as oracular flight pattern decipherment, as it were. And um, we also have, of course, a huge number of animal mummies from ancient Egypt. In, um, and, and definitely want to get to the um, piece about the, the mummies and the tombs um, soon. But in, in ancient Egypt, so when it comes to um, traditional, um, traditional religion, was there a pantheon that was fairly defined, like you would see in uh ancient greece for instance like was there a set of um deities that uh was a a affinitive number and, and could each of those and if so could each of those be linked to a specific animal the egyptians were did not sort of have a well, okay let's start with this mm -hmm. first of all ancient egypt um lasted much much longer than ancient greece shall we say by about 2,500 years. Um, so one cannot expect the pantheon to be static. So the ancient Egyptians were great believers 
in uh, inclusivity as opposed to exclusivity. And so they would, um, you know, there's a god here, there's a goddess here, someone's coming from abroad, they're bringing new deities, let's just include them in the pantheon. And so we would have uh, a great variety coming in that way. So, and, you know, each city had its own god to start with, and then Egypt was unified, and you wind up with state gods, and that becomes a larger um, contingent. Um, and so over the 3,000 years, they kept just adding on deities one after the other. And sometimes mm. we don't even know of some of the gods and goddesses that existed. So a friend of mine was recently excavating, and he came across the name of a goddess that he hadn't met before. And then, of course, it turns out that there's one other mention of her, and she's sometimes associated with snakes. Um, so I think that no one has been able to completely exhaustively catalog all the deities from ancient Egypt and almost all of them were associated with some kind of animal or the other. What's known about how a, a deity uh, became associated with a particular animal? Basically, as far as we can make out, um, if a god was, for example, Thoth is the god of writing and being learned, and one of the animals associated with him is the sacred ibis. And this might be because the sacred ibis's beak looks like a pen. Hmm. So as Thoth was a god of writing, this seems um, a good match. And also the ibis sort of rootles around in the earth looking for things and this is supposed to parallel Thoth's quest for wisdom so the idea is that whatever the god's attributes are those are matched to a particular creature so um, the goddess Bastet goddess of love and beauty and motherhood is frequently associated with the cat and as we all know cats are very self-indulgent they're very beautiful they spend a lot of time grooming and they actually do make very good mothers Hmm. That's very interesting, Salima. Um, okay, so let's work our way into the, the, the tombs and the mummies um, segment then in this con conversation. Uh, can you speak more about um, what's speculated or known about why various animals uh, showed up, have shown up in, in, in tombs? And what were some of the more common animals that uh, show up, have, have shown up in uh ancient Egyptian tombs? So we have a lot of mummified animals and in before Egypt was unified, in fact, there are large cemeteries where all kinds of creatures were found um, and we're still struggling to quite understand the nature of these cemeteries. Um, but we have uh, certainly from the dynastic period, once Egypt was a unified state, uh, different kinds of animal mummies show up or animal burials. The one that's easiest for us to understand is that of pets. And we have pet burials um, that were mummified and either buried with the deceased or sometimes in the same tomb or in the courtyard, depending on when the person died and when the animal died. Um, and you frequently see them painted on the coffins or um, in the tomb walls and their names are engraved. And it's really sweet because you know that the ancient Egyptians loved their pets. One of my favorite ones is Hapi Men, who was uh, living in the Ptolemaic period. And when they 
opened up his coffin, they found a dog curled up and mummified at his feet, um, probably uh, where he slept when <laughs> Happy Man was alive. So that's a really uh, lovely story. It really is. Um, what was the purpose of mummifying the, well, the, the animals? The mummifying anyone or anything is basically to preserve it for as long as possible, the ancient Egyptians hoped, um, for eternity. So that's why they also mummified things like food because they wanted food offerings for the afterlife. So they would mummify food and put it in all wrapped up and ready to go so that you could eat it when you were resurrected. And this was, and then you have, um, sacred animal mummies, which is when you have the, they believed that the spirit or part of the spirit of the God would enter into a body of his toe or her totemic animal. And this animal could be recognized by the priests by specific markings. And when the, um, animal died, the spirit of the God would enter into another similarly marked body of another animal and continue to be revered. And, you know, the Romans were like, oh, this is ridiculous. But it's not very different from the same idea that we have about the Dalai Lama, where this is an eternal soul that moves, migrates from body to body um, in order to have contact with the devotees. And then the kind of animal mummy that you see most often in museums are what we call votive offerings. And these are um, animals that, you know, for example, if you're talking about Bastet, who is a cat, in her temple, there might be one particular cat that is where the spirit of Bastet enters. So that would be the divine sacred cat. But to make offerings to her, people would sometimes give statues or stele, um, or if they really wanted to get points, they would have to sacrifice a life and they would take a cat and have it mummified. So the cat would be killed um, and the mummy would be devoted, dedicated to Bastet. And in this way, the mummy would carry the prayer of the person to the goddess for eternity. So in fact, the individual who made that offering would get extra credit because it would be not just for this world, but also for the next. And that's the most numerous kind of animal mummies that we have. Can you expand on the point, Salima, about uh, how the, the spirit of um, of someone may uh, go into a different entity? Could you expand on that point? This, as far as we know, only worked for the gods, not for mere mortals. So the idea was that a little bit of the divine spark could go into either a statue, but in this case, into a specially marked animal um, that was a totem of the god. So for the apis bull, the spark of the god Ptah would enter a bull that you could recognize because it had a blaze here or a mark on the tongue or something in the tail. And that during that animal's lifetime, it would be worshipped and it would have oracular powers and it would be really well looked after. When it died, the spirit of the god would pass into the body of another similarly marked animal mm. and the first one that had died would then be beautifully mummified and buried with great pomp and splendor in elaborate catacombs in Egypt. Interesting. So then in, in this tradition, did ancient Egyptians then believe that once the deity passes into another uh, animal body, 
Um, did they did they identify that next animal? And what was their belief systems uh, around around the, the 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 next entity? So, I mean, the next entity would just be yet another vessel for the divine spark. And as I said, he'd be recognized because it would be specially marked or there might have been, you know, uh, a kind of omen surrounding the birth of that animal, whether it was a star in the sky, a bolt of lightning, um, something unusual happening Mm. um, that was noteworthy. And the priests would be going around looking for the next Apis bull the same way, you know, they look for the next Dalai Lama. Um, Mm. So it really is a very parallel sort of way of thinking. So uh, animals, uh, certain animals in ancient Egypt were very revered. Absolutely. Um, But, you know, it wasn't like in some places where all um, examples of a certain species are revered. So the Egyptians would revere bulls and cows, but that didn't mean that they wouldn't eat them. So there were only specific ones that were regarded as sacred, and those were kept in the temple. But otherwise, you would eat bulls and cows. Well, bulls not so much, but cows certainly. Um, and you would uh, also use them for their milk and, and so on and so forth. So it wasn't that they were sacred and couldn't be touched. Okay. It was only the ones that were kept in the temples that were sacred. Okay. Uh, over the years, what... Uh... What uh, discovery uh, or finding in your research kind of stands out that uh, for you that's very memorable as it pertains to um, animals in ancient Egypt? Well, um, one of the nicest things was I was cleaning a crocodile mummy um, and mm. brushing it and giving doing gentle suction. And I put my hand in its mouth and I thought, why do you have sticks in there? And I pulled mm. them out and they were baby crocodiles, which was great because in fact, the ancient Egyptians, um, well, actually crocodiles themselves, um, carry their babies on their backs or when mm. they're really teeny weeny in their mouths for safety. And the ancient Egyptians had observed this. And so they would wrap up these crocodile babies and put them into the mouths of the big crocodiles to show this idea of protection and also rebirth and resurrection from this powerful crocodile god so that was very cool and then um, another time i was uh, x-raying a crocodile egg and i could actually see a little little crocodile in there which was so cute ah Um, the first example, the former example there, is it believed that um, people uh, put the, the babies in, in the mouth? And if so, that was for symbolic reasons? Yeah, yeah, okay. absolutely. Okay. So what are you working on these days, Salima? Um, well, uh, right now with Corona, it's, we're not doing as much work as we would like, but I had a fantastic um, time working on a site which is... Uh, a fifth dynasty pyramid site, but we have some wonderful, now other people don't get excited about this, but this is a a big pile of rubbish that I could um, go through. And we're trying to, looking at the animal bones, trying to figure out what people ate uh, during this time period. And if we can figure out, you know, whether the very high elite ate one thing and people who are a bit in the lower social classes ate something different, where they were getting their food, um, mm. how much they might have gotten. So that is very cool. And hopefully in um, 
June, I'm going to be going south to work on another excavation where we have found some, a lot of bird mummies, but also mm. shrew mummies, which are one of my favorites. Okay, yeah. Um, probably like a lot of people, you're, you're probably uh, eyeballing the statistics and the policies and all this right now, um, waiting to see when you can travel more. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's, it's rough. Okay, uh, Salima, thank you for coming on the show and sharing your knowledge today. Thank you so much, Andrew, for the invitation. Okay, everybody, again, the couple books that I mentioned at the start of the episode that Dr. Ikram wrote, she's editor of Divine Creatures, Animal Mummies in Ancient Egypt, and uh, co-editor of A History of World Egyptology. I'll drop links to both the books in the show notes on the IthacaBound.com's associated subpage to this episode. Salima and everybody listening, as always, wishing a marvelous journey. Bye for now. Hey again, if you enjoyed today's episode, please subscribe to the podcast and I wish you a bountiful rest of your day. Bye for now.